this is Script Lock, where we talk about storytelling in video games. I'm Max Folkman. And I'm Nick Folkman. And today we have returning guests, uh, Greg Kasavin and Kate Dollarhide joining us. Uh, Kate is a game designer and writer of games and fiction. She was a narrative designer on Pillars of Eternity 2, Deadfire, all of its DLC, The Outer Worlds, and was a narrative co-lead on The Outer Worlds, Pearl on Gorgon. And Greg is the creative director of Supergiant Games and writer of Bastion, Transistor, Pyre, and Hades. Welcome back, you two. And congratulations since last time you came on here because uh, since last time, Greg, you've been winning a lot of accolades with Hades and Kate won a nebula for the work on Outer Worlds. Yeah. 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 It's been a really wild few years for both of us, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It goes, it goes, goes by fast, though. <laughs> it doesn't, oh, doesn't it seem sure like does. that long. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 fun living the dream, right? And getting to, I mean, I, I I thank my lucky stars I get to do this stuff at all, much less to work on stuff that some people out there say nice things about from time to time. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's nice. it's so weird. It's like even when the job is really hard, I try to remind myself there's so few careers where you can make a living as a writer. Yeah, where all you do is write. Um, so in that regard, I feel tremendously lucky. Same here. <laughs> and I'll start with a topical question. Now that we're almost a year into working from home during COVID, has working from home been better or worse than either you've expected? Yeah, for, for me, it's been, you know, I, I've like, I've worked from home part of the time kind of um, for as long as I can remember. I used to, I used to work in the gaming press before I was in uh, game development and I would, you know, play ga- play games from home, write reviews from home. So it's kind of, for me, that aspect of everything that's happened in the last year has been like relatively comfortable. Uh, even, and it's strange. I kind of beat myself up over this because it's it's hard to find like silver lining at a time when it's just straight up bad for so many people. So you just feel guilty when any aspect of it is is okay but you know i don't i don't miss having to commute to san francisco and things like that i get to see my family more and so on so but yeah i mean it's it becomes harder to separate um to to keep that separation between work and and everything else but that's something that has always been hard for me for the, for the aforementioned reasons mm-hmm. so yeah it's it's not been i'm i'm again i'm grateful that that didn't like that I was able to keep working at all, I guess, like really not something you could take for granted, uh, um, you know, ever, but especially in, in recent months. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I echo that it's, it's been, it's been, you know, obviously in a tremendous blessing to have a steady job, um, that pays me relatively well, um, that I can depend on during what is truly one of the worst, um, things to happen that I, when I've been alive. So um, in, in that regard, it's been a, a, a really big blessing. But um, at the same time, it's, it's been very strange. You know, I'm, I'm much, uh, I'm such a homebody and I'm not really into socializing generally. Um, you know, I like to, I like to like stay home and read books and write generally, but um, I didn't realize until we were forced to work from home that um, I really get so much of my creative energy, especially around game writing um, from being with my peers in person and doing like in-person collaboration, brainstorming. 
stuff like that. Um, that has made not development necessarily harder. Um, it's just made it different. Um, and so, you know, sort of re renegotiating those like team relationships and stuff has been not hard, but, um, different, different. Yeah. I, I worry about what you're, what you're saying like a lot and I don't know how to, I don't know how to kind of replace it under the circumstances. Cause I know I'm, I'm, I'm very similar where I don't, you know, I don't like my, my, my social life didn't change, uh, under COVID <laughs> let's say, but like that so many of our, um, so many of the good ideas that have come up at our studio over the years do happen sort of spontaneously of just like a random, you know, whatever, walking over to get a cup of, get a coffee somewhere or something like that. They, they don't happen like in some scheduled, you know, we will have a Zoom conversation to discuss, <laughs> you know, the next project at 6 p.m. tomorrow or whatever. Um, it's, it's just more off the cuff and it's harder to replicate those kind of off the cuff um, conversations uh, right now. Um, you know, we use Slack and these kind of things. But it's like it's it's definitely not quite the same. So I wonder I wonder what is being lost. It's it's very kind of nebulous because you know day yeah. in and day out everything's still happening. But like yeah, there are these certain who knows what little good good nuggets of of ideas you know might not be happening because that that kind of face to face thing isn't isn't the same right now. Yeah, like the games are absolutely still getting made, but. Um... You know, we, I, I used to work in an office with um, the game director, the level lead, um, and the art director for Parallel Gorgon, and we had a huge whiteboard that was just all one wall. And when, um, you know, we hit story problems or just like weird questions or order of operations stuff for quests, which in an Obsidian game is always a, a real challenge and a hurdle for us to climb over, um, just being able to like, you know, get all those people together and stand in front of a whiteboard and just like draw stuff out and then say like, oh, you know what, we really need, you know, Paul and Natai's input. So we go grab them from next door. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I run into um, a character artist in the break room while we're getting bagels or something. I'm like, oh, I had a question for you about, you know, like textures or, or something. Um, can we do this with this character? And you know, I don't want to bother those people during their work yeah. day now for, for such a silly question. Um, so we just don't have those conversations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I feel similarly, it's, it's harder to like, even though it's just a Slack message away or something like that, it's still that like kind of obtrusive, you know, I am, I'm impinging on your time. Like when, when, when you're in, when you're in an office environment or something like that, you could see if someone's got their, you know, headphones on. It's like make that kind of judgment call of not to I'm not going to bother you right now, but yeah, if they're, if they're up getting a bagel or something, <laughs> open, <laughs> open season. And I don't know that the, the equivalent of that. Um, yeah. In any case, it, it seems like some studios are trying to find their, their tactics around this. Uh, Max, do you guys have uh, Nick, do you, have you solved uh, these kind of problems? I was going to say, it's interesting from our perspective where we got hired by Insomniac two weeks before the pandemic hit. And it's yeah. so, like, we were in the office for a couple of weeks and, we didn't really get, we don't have enough of experience to like miss the things you're talking about. Right. So, but, cause we're also like, we work from home for our entire career in the games industry and we're used to working from home. And for one part of it, we were not going stir crazy when everyone else in the studio was for like working from home cause we're just used to it. And we thought it was totally fine. But then the other part was, I totally get the thing of like not wanting to bother people and I can get like missing going back in. But I guess for Nick and I, we 
get across that by having we can just bounce ideas off each other the yeah. entire day anyway. Mm-hmm. And most of the time we're working on different projects. And so there's tons of stuff like in Miles that Nick wrote because he just I just threw him a line and then he gave me an idea and I put it in and then vice versa for Ratchet and Clank. I will say Insomniac's weird because there's two studios. There's one in uh, California, one in North Carolina. And it's been nice to – I feel like I'm interacting more with the North Carolina people than I would have if I was at the studio just because everything is on Slack now. Everything is online, and Ooh, so yeah. we're developing relationships better that way. But I don't enjoy – it feels like every day is meetings. And I know <laughs> that would have been true right. in the studio. But when you see it on the – when you're just sitting at your chair, like doing video calls every half hour, it destroys me. It's so exhausting. It's like uniquely exhausting, at least to me. Yeah, yeah. It is weird. Like more has been kind of – written about that as, as people started to kind of observe the, it's counterintuitive, right? It doesn't seem like it should be, it should feel as exhausting as it ends up feeling, but yeah, there's, there's all the weird, you know, I, I, I think there, I've, I've read some stuff that it's like, even just, you, you can't just like make eye contact with someone or something like that in quite the same way. It's just, I, I think your brain is like having to do more work <laughs> to just kind of like um, put together what everybody is saying is it's harder to just read everybody in quite the same way when you're, when you're face to face. I don't know. It's, I I suppose sitting in like meeting rooms all day would, would also be exhausting, but yeah, there's, there's an aspect as, as Kate was saying, there's an aspect of, of like being in the same place as the people you're collaborating with that, that ideally is like pretty energizing. Um, certainly, yeah, for, for me, for me, that's true. Were you going to say something, Max? No. Okay. <laughs> I was going to, uh, Greg kind of answered it, but Kate, did you, do you feel like it's been hard to keep a healthy work-life balance when you can basically work at any time now? Oh gosh. Um, I am a devotee of work-life balance um, in part because I have to be. So once, um, once the clock hits 6, 6.30 at my work computer, I turn it off and immediately go and start um, dinner usually. But then after that, uh, because I write books at night, um, then I start my second job. So I can't really um, maybe devote as much time to <laughs> overworking as I would have if I were in the office. It's so much easier to, you know, 6.30 comes around and I'm like, oh, but I'm, I'm on this conversation that I'm, it's really flowing or whatever. Um, and so I'll, you know, hang around for another hour. And then at that point, other people are leaving and they're like, hey, you want to go get drinks or dinner or whatever. So we go across the street and I end up you know, having informal work meetings um, (laughs) late into the evening, and that's not happening anymore. So, um, you know, I start, start the work day, work and then leave immediately, um, just because I have other things on my plate. So I guess I'm not doing more day job work, but I'm doing more night job work as a result, which is, I think, leading to a tremendous amount of burnout for me. <laughs> but um, it's it's something I'm still learning how to negotiate because I tend to just fall into a project and go hard on it and um, not take care of the other parts of my life. Those are like personal projects, though, right? The the novel writing is that mm-hmm. like a is that like a self imposed uh, pressure slash deadline, or or do you have like real uh, deadlines that you're or I mean, I don't know. Self-imposed deadlines are real deadlines. Sorry. No, no, I, I totally, I know, I know the distinction you're is, talking is someone, about. <laughs> is someone else uh, putting the deadlines on you other than yourself, I guess is what I meant to ask. Right. Um, yeah, I don't have a, um, like an editor breathing down my yeah. neck. My book's not contracted. But, um, you know, I have made like 
I don't know, promises to my agent that yeah. I'll have this to you by the state. Um, but it, it really is mostly self-imposed deadlines. And I think it at a certain point, I just get into a sort of obsessive loop where all I can think about is this book project. So when I'm not you know, doing game writing stuff, it's like, well, I want to work on the book and I want to yeah. you know, make the book better and I want to get it done so I can move on to the next thing. <laughs> um, because, you know, like the work, the work feeds itself to a degree. I yeah. just get more excited. I don't know if that's the same for you, Greg. Uh, no, it is. It is for sure. And it's like one of those things where if you if you fall off of it, it's, it's also it's very momentum based. If you like yeah. fall off of it, then it's hard to ramp back up. I, I, I'm really like a, I'm like envious of what you're, you're saying, because I've never been able to like manage side projects um, really and but I got close. I got close one time, like during Pyre. I, I got I got regimented. I I started writing something like extracurricularly, and I was I was in my routine. I got pretty deep into it, but then you know, sure enough, I like I I forget what specifically happened. I you know think work got busier, and I fell off of it, and I kind of never never came back to it. So I, I um, but but I I you know it is it is when you have a when you have a full day at work that involves a lot of writing then then like sw switching over and writing some more is obviously really difficult too writing is <laughs> it's not always pleasurable right you kind of like no. have to get it out of your you, you got to get it out of your system i say it's like a, for me it's like exorcism it's like get out like out, <laughs> out with you and then and then i feel like i feel good or uh, good is too strong a word i feel like better when when it's when it's over but it's not always like yeah, this is awesome. You know, yeah. it's, it's no. rarely <laughs> that way. I, I totally understand that feeling. Um, I was having a one-on-one -on -one with my manager a couple months ago. And um, one of the things that we talked about was how writing is, I don't want to say uniquely, but it, at least it feels unique to me, extractive, like yeah. mental and emotional labor. So it's not quite the same as like, I don't know, like making really cool VFX, that is absolutely laborious work. But I feel like sometimes um, the the rate at which we are asked to produce content is not doesn't make sense with with how like exhausting writing can be sometimes, mm -hmm. um, especially when you're writing about like hard topics or you're writing from personal right. experience. Um, you know, a hard a hard day of writing about, I don't know, like parents. <laughs> yeah. It, it doesn't leave me energized to come back to work and sit down and do like, you know, a couple scenes on the book. So those tend to be lead to like fallow periods for personal work um, when the when the, the day job work gets yeah. really intense. Do you force yourself to write like kind of no matter no matter what, like kind of even just sit in front of a blank screen for an hour, you know, if that's what it takes or, or is it uh, or are you a little more forgiving <laughs> with yourself than that? You know, I used to um, yeah. when when I first decided to take my writing seriously. Um, sorry, my cat is going crazy in the background. Um, <laughs> after we move on from this question, I'll I'll kick him out. Um, <laughs> he really wants to get out of this room. Um, I used I used to force myself to write, and I found that the work I did under those circumstances wasn't necessarily good. Yeah. So what I try to do now is to engage with my writing or the world that I'm writing in. Um, Sorry, I'm just laughing at this cat. Um, in, in a way that doesn't necessarily exhaust me. So, you know, like I, I have a couple playlists for characters and in the world. And so I'll listen to that and, you know, think about the, the unresolved questions in the manuscript. Or 
I'll go to my Pinterest board and just find a couple of new inspiration images or like, because I like to try to control every aspect of my life, um, have like a cover inspiration board where it's like, these are the vibes that I can see this book being packaged with. Um, And then I just, you know, find art for that. Just some way to engage with the project that doesn't necessarily involve the same amount of intellectual labor that keeps me like in the, in the sort of obsessive mode I need to write, but doesn't um, wear me out. Right. Yeah. That's, that sounds better than the (laughs) the thing I tried. (laughs) I recommend it. I, rec- I just yeah. recommend writers being kind to themselves. Um, you know, some people can churn out a thousand words a day, every day, regardless of what's going on in their personal life or at their jobs. But I feel like most of us cannot do that, especially if you've got like, you know, kids or family members or that you have to take care of or, um, you know, just like personal life stress. Um, it's, it's too hard. Is it, I don't know if you have this problem, Greg, is it easy to convince or if there are people like you work with or near you who don't understand how hard it is to write some days and like people assume that it is it is easy is it hard to convince them it's it's it, it's a really tough question actually that it leaves me it leaves me lost in thought like i don't i don't think that like you know i i, I work with a group of people who inherently value um writing and in, in games i think because it's just like a you know it, it's one of those like writing and storytelling and games, it's like it's kind of strictly optional, right? Like you don't need games don't need to have story to be good, successful games. Um, so it, it's it's one of those things that it's not a given, and and it takes a certain not everybody sees the value in it, even right to the to this day. But I, I'm really fortunate to work with with a group that that obviously does does value it. But I I, I I'm responsible, I think, largely for the my own terrible deadlines in a lot of cases like n- nobody sort of dumps the work on me um i do it to myself the <laughs> most um we do like like we made a game in early access that had a lot of deadlines on it um and the deadlines were going to happen kind of no matter what no matter what so it was just kind of a question of how much um we thought we could get done on a writing front um there and I do like deadlines a lot. Um, I think that it goes back to my my previous line of work. So we would we would kind of like schedule actors, and that would fill me with the Ooh, yeah. sense of pressure <laughs> to like get a bunch of stuff together to make it just kind of to make it worth their while. Like I don't want to like waste the actors' time. So get a good amount of stuff together to fill the time that we have with them, and that that you know ends up being. Th- that keeps the fire kind of under under my butt through most of development really um but yeah the and and those you know again those deadlines like when we schedule the actors like i i sign off i sign off on those decisions right they're not like forced upon me um sometimes though they're they're certainly like particularly later in production you know we would uh, and and with covid and everything it like got it got really dicey toward the end of toward the end of Hades, where we're like, "How are we even going to do this?" Because some of the actors we had coming to our studio, we we have a small recording booth there. We'd kind of fly them in. Not every actor was set up, so we we had to figure out how to even kind of move forward with that stuff. And sent everybody microphones in the mail and this kind of thing. And we're like, "Let's just get all this stuff out of the way as soon as we can," because who knows 
th- this is back in March of, of 2020, right? When, when the situation was starting to get really dicey and nobody knew. Mm-hmm. Now it's like it, it, still nobody knows what happens, but we're all, we've all been living under this. So we kind of like know a little bit more of what it's like day in and day out. But back in March, it's like, who knows what's going to happen? Can we even finish this project? Um, mm-hmm. So we, yeah. we, we really kind of put the pedal to the metal on writing and recording uh, toward the end there. I don't know if that answers your, your question, though. It's, it does. Yeah. Like, Kate, did you hear the original question? Kate? I did not hear the original question. I'm sorry. Could you repeat it for me? Because basically going off what you were saying about, like, sometimes it's hard to write in certain topics or it'll take a lot out of you. Mm. And I don't know if this will be probably with you, too, because Obsidian is such like a narrative-heavy, focused studio. But it, can it be hard to, like, talk to people who aren't writers and, like, who expect things to get written quicker when it's like, no, this, will, this is, this is going to take a while. Uh, you know, it, it can be a challenge sometimes. Um, it's hard, and I'm sympathetic to it, to be honest. Like, it's very challenging to understand what it's like to write something creatively, um, like what that experience is like and how long it takes to, you know, iterate, to write and iterate on good writing. It's not as quick as, you know, writing off an email or something. Um, So it's, for me, it's been, you know, I I came to the studio when um, it had already had an established reputation as a a narrative-focused studio. So people generally internally value writing and understand that it takes quite a lot of time. Um, So a lot of the advocacy work has been done for me. I think what we sort of struggle with going forward with, is that writing is seen, I think, as a little bit more disposable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, because it's it's easy to say, um, like, well, we're going to cut this quest, and it's mostly talking. So, right. whoop, there it goes out the window. You know, because writing creates work for a bunch of other teams. So the easiest way to save other people time and labor is to, to cut our content. Um, and I was on a project not too long ago that had uh, a ton of writing cut over and over again. Um, it, it went through several iterations and it ended up being just like a real morale drag on the writing team um, because it, it felt, at least to me a little bit, that um, the, the labor that we'd put into it wasn't quite as valuable as like the stuff that's easier to engage with, like maybe like a level layout or um, like, like a really cool vista um, some really awesome 2D art or like a really cool um, piece of character art, like a really great outfit. Um, because that stuff, you can just look at it and see, and you can see its value, it's evident. Um, to see writing's value, you have to engage with it. And that is um, hard to get people to do. And then also the value that they're going to find in it is, of course, going to be subjective. So what I might think is um, a really awesome quest that asks cool questions of the world and the characters and forces them to make good choices you know, might feel boring to someone else. Um, and then I just have to uh, accept that that's the case sometimes. <laughs> um, I think I've wandered away from your original question, but... Um, no, this is a great answer, though. <laughs> yeah. um, I hope it doesn't get me in trouble. I don't think it will. I mean, it's fine. Um, we sympathize. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, uh, Obsidian is, is generally pretty cool about us speaking honestly about the nature of our work. Um, which is something that I, I really value about my time at the studio. Um, so, but yeah, it, it's it's just an education proje- process, honestly, and accepting that not everyone is going to value the same things that you do, and that's fine. 
Yeah, I, I definitely have that experience of like um, the writing I or the the writing being the most kind of disposable asset um, mm-hmm. that that it, like we um, you know I I think that's part of why we uh, I mean hopefully I, I think it's one of the things my colleagues uh, value about me but um, but it is uh, a hard like aspect of the the day-to-day is that typically it's like that there are, it's it, like if if something has to change it's just kind of a given that well the the writing will just adapt mm-hmm. uh to 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 fit that change and and you know I'll 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 take care of it we'll just kind of write around it that's that's fine and like sometimes that can be really difficult um and sometimes I have to speak up and and explain why that can be very difficult, especially toward the end of a project when, you know, as, as, as you know, it's like writing is, it's a big puzzle mm-hmm. and toward the end, almost all the pieces are in place. And when you throw, when you kind of discard a couple of the pieces at the end, it can really um, throw the entire thing off. And it, it gets really, really scary uh, as a writer when, when, when you feel like, you know, it's, it, you're on a project that's kind of loosey goosey with whether the writing is going to, like, is any of this stuff going to stick? Because you're trying to build on a foundation, and if you and if the foundation is shaky, you feel like it could get kind of like torn out from under you at any moment. It's it's hard to move forward from that. And I I think some of the kind of morale issues you describe, I I relate to around that when, um, when I just couldn't be sure if like whether I thought it was good or not, whether that was even relevant um, in, yeah. in certain <laughs> cases. Um, but but then yeah at other times everything is kind of early access actually turned out to be a bit of a tangent but I I was really surprised and interested to see how valuable early access was like to to offsetting that feeling because like you, we would just when when the public feedback would be like oh this character is cool I like this it's like oh cool that that's safe now now I have con- <laughs> no one can cut it now <laughs> yeah no one absolutely I I experienced that like for the first time ever. Um, in fact, it's like, oh, these characters are, they're in. Whereas on a game like Pyre, there were characters I really cared about that I felt like I was kind of like fighting for, um, through, through, or, or and not fighting for, it's too strong a word, but it's like, I felt like they were at risk of like potentially getting scoped out all through the project. But, and, and all we had to go on was me saying, nah, dude, you know, it'll be awesome. Right. Trust like me. it's not a very, <laughs> yeah. Trust me is like wh- whenever I'm find myself saying the equivalent of trust me, I know I've lost. Um, yeah. so, yeah. so I try not to get into those situations at all. And with early access, it was like, Oh man, I just have this, it, it, all these characters are, are safe now. Uh, Cause our players like them. And I, and I could just build on them with confidence. So it was a really uh, good experience for me in that regard. Do you remember specifically like one of the characters that you were worried about that oh. people latched onto? Oh yeah, it's I mean it's it's like a lot of them. Um, it's like geez, it's like uh, Dusa, Thanatos, uh, no chaos. Uh, the the, the <laughs> story the, <laughs> no. the, the storyteller, um, the, like the narrator was it was a character. Uh, you know when you talk to Cerberus and you hear this uh-huh. kind of like. The, the narrator character in the game was um, was someone that was like in, in our internal playtests before the early access launch that was like a character that that got like really mixed reviews internally and some people felt like that character was like unnecessary and that like the meta humor there was like ah it's not landing no one's gonna get it because we have the, this whole like backstory moment early on in the game where it's like essentially the narrator like 
spoils it, 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 you have to it's hard to it's hard to explain but it's like a, almost like a fourth wall kind of breaking moment that's a, that's that's silly um and and there was a concern that people like won't won't get it or whatever but everybody got it you know we <laughs> tested it and everybody got it and everybody laughed and so it's like okay cool we're not changing that um whereas i think normally on one of our projects you know if we spent three years just working on our own we just would have been second guessing that constantly um and, and getting the public feedback on it just let us move on um, to, to, to then deal with the next thing <laughs> that would yeah. make us <laughs> I- insecure about the story, you know. You listed all my favorite characters. It, I mean, I think it, I, I, I assume it's not coincidental, but yeah. The stuff you fight the hardest for. Yeah, it's just the stuff that's like a little, you know, it's going to be the stuff that's less straightforward i think where people mm-hmm. some people are going to go like uh you know i don't i i think this is cool but maybe this other person won't think it's cool or whatever mm-hmm. it's like the- theory craft or I, I mean it's people's own subjectivity as well it's also tough because with writing you know yeah it's like you don't get to ha- the, the the downside of early access writing is that like you have to get it right the first time mm, yeah. <laughs> so it's i mean there's some there's some amount of iteration, but yeah, like, you know, we could change aspects of the design over and over, but with, with uh, every, every piece of writing was like instantly canonical, you know, the moment we put it into an update, um, that sort of thing. So that, that applied a certain amount of pressure, uh, for sure. But I've never thought about that. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah. People, I mean, I think it's like, if it were people just, just assume that that that's how it is i mean we could take like a more comedic tone with some stuff and and give ourselves some like latitude but when it came to like the more like emotional parts of the story it's like well that that's just we couldn't i i actually can't imagine what it would have been like if we had to like rewrite a character entirely of like oh you know dusa you know we shouldn't have made her silly like now dusa is this more serious character and we replaced all her voiceover or something like i i don't know what that would have been like for us it probably would have gone pretty bad well, just it like just with, like creates yeah. opportunities for schisms among players. Um, yeah. You know, they're, they're in a traditional development cycle. Players aren't going to see all the stuff that you cut or all the exactly. changes that you made. Um, and so once I imagine in an early access situation, once you start introducing big changes that they notice, it's an opportunity for people to say that you made the wrong choice and then to um, I liked it better hold before. it against you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. The old I liked it better before, which happens internally on on development teams, I think, quite a bit. But mm-hmm. but then um, you know you know when it's in early access, it's out there, um, in in uh, for the public to scrutinize as well. And even though you know the context is there, like people know that technically the game isn't done; it's still work in progress. Anything is subject to change. But yeah, I, I my experience with with story was that people didn't regard people didn't give the story that level of leeway as with mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, this art might get better or something like that. Um, the, the, there's no sense of like, this writing will improve. <laughs> there is no sense of like, this is the first pass or something. It's like, oh, that's just the characters, you know, which is like, it's great because it, again, it's sort of the plus side of it is that it's the writing working. It's like people are convinced that these are, these are characters. This is just what they would say. It's not like a ga- like game design, quote unquote, it's, no, you know, that that's just what this character would say in this situation. Why would you ever change that? That sort of thing. Yeah. This is kind of an early access question, but or a general one, but it reminds me of maybe you two don't experience this, but it's like when I have to live with a piece of writing for like a while, like months or years, and then at a certain point I'm like, 
is this is this really bad writing, or am I just used to it for too long? Mm. And I assume that is exacerbated in early access, where like you have players who are giving feedback, like they, maybe they don't like something, but you don't know, or it might not be easy to tell. Like, okay, do they not like it? And it's generally bad, or is just like they are too used to it, and you can't really take their feedback that much to heart. Was that ever an issue? Well, the the nice thing for us is. Like I, for me, this was, this was good. I, I think, I think it did create discomfort on our team, but like we moved, we had to move faster than we are normally comfortable doing. Like we want to, you know, we've made like a game like Transistor. We spent the same amount of time on Transistor as Hades, or we spent a little more on Hades, but they were both about three years. Uh, Transistor is like a six hour game and, but people play Hades for like a hundred or 200 hours. So it's like, well, how did that happen, right? How did we spend the same amount of time on a game that could be played that much more? And one of the answers is we spent like way more time on every like square inch of Transistor uh, than we did on Hades. And we just kind of like moved on faster from more... Our team also grew. Um, so it's, it's it's more factors. But we we weren't quite as like excruciatingly kind of meticulous about every square inch of Hades knowing that it would be this like replayable game. Um, and, and so like the writing, it, when it came to something like the writing, it was just like less painstaking cause we couldn't afford to like, if, if we had to iterate on a sentence like 13 times or whatever, or 20 times, like we did in some cases on transistor, then we were already just barking. Then we were solving the wrong problem. We just had mm. to like if, move on and find some, some more kind of fluent, solution to that situation and we were just trying to get to like a a volume of of content so it had to move pretty fast um so i don't think we so basically in short we were always moving on to the next thing i wasn't really like reevaluating a lot of my old work that much until toward the end of the project when it's like finally time to, you know, let's revisit all this stuff. Let's replay the game from the beginning and let's kind of update things that no longer uh, fit that well. But that was still me like kind of more focused on just matching what else is there as opposed to like, I, well, it's a combination of stuff that, that didn't feel as, as well-written, but mostly just trying to make everything fit and tone match with everything else, if that makes sense. Totally. Yeah, I feel like characters, especially characters you're writing for a really long time, they, they tend to drift a little bit with yeah. time as your understanding of them informs or they you find ways to play them off other characters around them or, or whatever. Um, and so you have to go back and update the yeah. way they talk or what they talk about. Even even the like vocal performances, if, they, if they're recorded over mm. a long period of time, can like, oh, this early... Uh, uh, Darren Korb, who's our audio director, does all our music and also is the voice of Zagreus and Skelly. He would like go back through and be like, "Oh, this, you know, I sound completely different how I'm doing Zagreus now as opposed to when we first started this project." And he would like pick up uh, older audio lines to kind of match the overall tone of it and so on. And yeah, that that would happen with the writing as well. And I have a unrelated question that is inspired by. Super Giants, shopkeepers, especially Falcon Ron in particular. <laughs> I love Falcon Ron. I cannot Thank understand. You. He's but so good. What about what do both of you think are the keys to creating and writing a memorable shopkeeper? Have you gotten to write shopkeepers, Kate? <laughs> oh yes, plenty of them. Um, yeah. Although I, 
I have to say, I don't think most of them are that memorable, um, with the exception of a character who... I love the player base because they always pick the most random characters to um, get really excited about. Yeah. There is a shopkeeper on Groundbreaker in the Outer Worlds named Martin Callahan, who's a man wearing a Moon Man helmet. Um, as you talk to Martin, he you understand that he has signed a contract that says he cannot take off the Moon Man helmet. He has to wear it all the time. And he's slowly going insane. Um, and so as you talk to him in dialogue, he just sort of unravels a little bit. Um, and Martin is really funny. He's sort of like a composite effort between me and um, Paul Kirsch and um, Dan, whose last name is escaping me right now. Oh, my gosh. Um, put on the spot and I can't remember. But, <laughs> but um, <laughs> basically what, what I think makes his character work and makes him so fun for the player base is that um, in an area where you have a lot of characters who are fulfilling narrative roles so they can't be too wacky and divisive to the players, he can be completely out there in one direction. If someone doesn't like him, that's totally fine. They don't have to interact with him ever again. Right. But for the players who, who do think he's great, he has a substantial chunk of content to just dig into. Um, and so the, the joy of doing vendors for me on the rare occasion I get to do them is to just do someone completely off the wall. Um, or someone who can really inform the, the world around them in ways that um, you know, the player character, who's generally an outsider, or um, characters maybe like more nested in the status quo, um, wouldn't be able to do. Um, like in Peril on Gorgon, there is, when you very first land on the asteroid, there is a shopkeeper whose name escapes me, um, written by Kelsey, who um, tells you about a guy named Chuck from accounting who is deep in the, um, deep in the, not caves, the, um, let's say caves, caves of Gorgon. He's like a huge guy with a rocket launcher. No one in this game has a rocket launcher. So um, players are like, what the hell? Why does this guy have a rocket launcher? I have to go find out about Chuck from accounting deep in the canyons with a rocket launcher. Um, and people really liked that because it felt like the world was a little more alive. You know, characters noticing each other and talking about each other and the things that they're doing is what makes the world feel alive. So vendors are a really good place to, to make a town feel like a town. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. It's like the, even the stuff that they're it's one of those fun, like, kind of narrative design opportunities. Also, it's like, what, what are they, what do they even have to offer? Is like a storytelling opportunity. You know, if you have some gross mm -hmm. shanty town and <laughs> the vendor is selling, you know, dead rats and fish heads, it, like, it tells you something about the world. Just like the stuff that they even have without them having to utter a word. Um, so I, I, I like, um, I like stuff like that. We played into that with uh, um, Maxie mentioned Pyre. It's like uh, Falcon Ron. It's like. You know what? What? What's a shop even called in this in this like world of exiles? <laughs> like, oh, it's the it's the slug market. Like, it's just this kind of. We're not going to tell you what a slug market is, other than the name. But like, you you just uh, you know, and it it should it should be enough. Like, you know that it's not. Um, you, you know, he's you're not you're not going to like Tiffany's jewelry or something <laughs> like that. It's it's something really uh, run down and kind of gross. Um, but I I think like one of the you know. Having a having a shopkeeper character that's like recurring, I think, is like a really a simple tool. Like, if your if your world can justify that, it's a really nice tool to begin to make your shopkeeper character like sort of stand out. Um, 
and and I, I think the cl- kind of classic example of this that I think about a lot is the Resident Evil, you know, what are you buying? Like, guy, <laughs> um, who's just this shady dude. Like, I think all he ever says is, what are you buying? What are you selling? Uh, I think those are exactly his two lines of dialogue. But, like, he's just there. He opens his dirty coat, and he's got, like, a sawed-off shotgun <laughs> in there and like and, like, green herbs, right? So it's just... It, and it's just like a bizarre, like non, like it's fun. It actually is funny, even when you're playing the game. This otherwise like scary, you know, survival horror game. Um, so it's just, it, it's just a chance to have something that is is like quirky, but also like expresses the the values of the world in a way. It's like if it, if, what do people buy and sell, and like how does this guy feel about it, or, or whatever. You don't necessarily have to go super deep on this character, as with as with the Resident Evil uh, shopkeeper, but the Resident Evil shopkeeper is like one of the most memorable characters in that game, despite having, you know, so little dialogue. It's just this presence and the recurrence of the character um, that that um, that really that really struck me. So yeah, with both Pyre and 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 Hades, we we had a chance to do that. And with Hades, it's it's also following like the roguelike uh, genre has kind of a tradition of the shopkeeper who can also like kick your ass. <laughs> like you could you could try to fight them and they'll fight you back or something like that. So and and Greek myth just gave us a kind of a softball pitch uh, in in Charon. It's like he's all he's taken. You know, people are going down the river sticks with like coins in their mouths and stuff like that. It's like oh, who else would could possibly be the shopkeeper in this game other than this guy? <laughs> um, so we made him since you could see him in every run we made him like not actually kind of say he just has his grunts and groans he's like one of the he's the character with the least amount of dialogue in in hades um because we figured like we don't we don't want him to slow you down too much you're you're there to shop so the 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 character can still assert himself uh but but not uh kind of take up too much of your time in that resident evil tradition do you know offhand how many groans he has? I, I do. Uh, I do. He has, uh, I believe, 125 of them, <laughs> which is which is the fewest. Uh, yeah, the the smallest number of lines that one of our characters has. How would you decide? He, like, okay, it's 125. That's the magic number for him. Oh, I mean, it it didn't. It, you know, it, the the answer is we didn't we didn't start with the number, right? It, it, that's just yeah. a number we ended. It, it happens to be a nice round sounding number, but that part is coincidental. We just wrote as much as we felt we needed and we intended for him to be like a lower scope character. And it still, it still grew over time. Cause there, there's like a, um, it basically again, as the early access went on and there became more situations in which you can encounter Charon, um, there, there were more opportunities to record more stuff for him. And it's all, it, he's also one of the six characters played by Logan Cunningham, um, who would, who would routinely record stuff for, for Hades and Achilles and so on. So it was very easy to throw in some Charon lines, you know, at the end of a session, uh, for him. But uh, yeah, like, you know, even though he's saying, uh, even though he's saying grunts and groans and stuff, we would still like, we would still write the subtext of them. They're still like what he is, you know, he's still saying like, pick something and get the hell out of my shop or something like that. As far as Logan is concerned, he's still trying to put something behind uh behind every grunt and groan um just so it doesn't feel totally random a lot of load bearing ellipses yes in that character (laughs) yes i like the i like the ellipses but yes yeah no i agree i I love them i think it's fun what do this is a stupid question but 
What do both of you use more, ellipses or M dash? Oh God. Oh my God. I, I'm terrible. I, I love that. I love an M dash. I love an M dash and a semicolon. Um, I try to steer clear of ellipses. I don't have a good reason. I just love it. I just love an M dash. Yeah. I, I, I avoided the, I used to like in my, um, in my game critic days, I think I probably abused the M dash like quite a bit. <laughs> like I used it like a lot, uh, to, to where our copy editor was like, had to put her foot down. She's like, I need to have, have like a, a, what's it called? Like a, like an intervention with our editorial team of like about the M dash. Like let's, let's slow down here. Um, there's a, there's a good punctuation mark called the period that, that can also be used. Um, but, but I, so I definitely use the ellipsis more in Hades, but that's because the M dash didn't look good. Like in our font mm. <laughs> uh, consideration I had. Um, but I, 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 yeah, I, I use the ellipsis probably too much if I had to be critical about that. I, I just like, to me, it's like part of a character's voice, but I would try to, I, I, I like the semicolon also. I try to like reserve it for like fancier characters, mm-hmm. something like that. It, it's fun to have like punctuation be, you know, like the exclamation mark is an easy one. Like Poseidon almost, he almost never uses periods. He's like every sentence is an, ends with an exclamation point. He's just a loud uncle kind of always shouting. Um, but, but then it, it's fun to reserve certain punctuation things like for certain characters when trying to separate their, their voices. Are you Oxford comma people? Oh, hell yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Clarity always. Yes. That's you. Yeah. I don't know, want to call out to people in Insomniac, but that's a internal argument. Well, no, the bigger okay, the bigger the, one is uh, last, the last time question. One space after periods or two spaces? Oh, geez. One. 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 one yeah. What <laughs> are you? Yeah. Who do you think I am? Yeah. That's a, I, I think two spaces after a period is seems Illegal. like it's rare now. Like it seems like to be a dying art. Uh, but but I I have one coworker who still who still does it, uh, and I discovered it like pretty recently. I'm like, dude, what? So <laughs> why? Yeah. No, I didn't know this about you. <laughs> this changes my you know this changes everything. <laughs> Two spaces after a period. I feel like it's it's a little bit of a like not a generational divide, but it's like how did you learn to type? If you learned on a typewriter, yeah. <laughs> then two spaces after a period was the um, the standard, right? So yeah. um, my my coworker Josh uh, Sawyer uses two period two spaces after a period, and I give him shit about it all the time. <laughs> but <laughs> just because it looks it looks so goofy to me, but I also learned how to type on a um, personal computer. So yeah, he this. This guy, my coworker does not have the, the, the generational excuse on this one, but I think it is the thing of like, I think it is like a more, you know, one of the stylistic things that was taught at some point in, you know, high school or something like that. That's what we were taught, but we know that. I think I was, I, I think I was taught that way, um, actually, and then, and then just kind of like, un, whatever, unlearned it at, yeah. at some point as it, like, you're wasting, wasting valuable bites or something on, on a... <laughs> Yeah. Valuable Twitter characters. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in the old days, we couldn't spare an extra space. Get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so this question actually came from Kate. And she wanted to know, in many of Supergiant, and I'm going to ask a question for Kate too that's related to this, but in many of Supergiant's games, there is a deep vein of romance and loss. Greg, is that some, something you're aware of? Or are they themes that have come out unconsciously? And are there any other themes that you think you or your studio gravitate towards? Yeah, I, I I think it is. You know, um, I I hope it's. 
I think it's both. Con- I, I think it's both. It's like it's definitely conscious, um, but you you know to the extent I try to write about things that that are like meaningful at least to me and maybe to others. It's just um, where I end up going with it. Like, like I'm interested in I'm interested in writing stories where I don't like know the answers to the questions at the outset. Right? It's like if if it if it can be reduced to like, like a uh, like a moral, right? Um, then then I'm not very interested in it. I'm I'm much more interested in stories that are like exploring how characters deal with certain situations. That should be situations where even if they're fantastical in the framing, uh, have something that's true to life about them, right? So you, you know, Hades. It's a it's about Greek gods and 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 ghosts and stuff like that. But it's about like a young man who's pissed off at his dad and says, screw you, dad, I'm leaving, right? Like a more familiar, um, a kind of more mundane idea. So all of our stories uh, secretly, not so secretly, are about something like pretty mundane. Uh, they're just couched in these more fantastical looking worlds. Um, and and uh, I think, yeah, with Bastion, it was very like, exp- I'm, I'm more comfortable talking about it now that it's many years uh, later but I, I i i hate to like identify the theme of the work right I, it feels reductive but mm. with, with with bastion it was like it was very directly about like the idea of like overcoming regret and having these different characters that are that like deal with regret in different ways with varying degrees of success and it just seemed like a rich theme to explore and that anyone could relate to on some level regardless of what level of regret they've personally experienced in their lives everyone has has something that they regret i think even from a young age and love likewise it's just it's just something that people feel the presence of or the absence of uh, whether they like it or not uh throughout their lives it just feels very core to the human condition so it's something that I I, I gravitate uh, toward just because I think it's something that everybody thinks about. And so when I when I'm trying to write characters, it's like, what are they thinking about, if not this? Uh, yeah. So those are just. Hopefully, we've spun it uh, in in very different ways from game to game. I'm always I, I feel very fortunate to have been able to work on like these these kind of different settings and and themes and stuff but there's the thing the thing that's the most important to me i think in in the stories i work on is that they kind of not be they're they're never um they're not like cynical stories they're more uh optimistic in their nature even something like transistor which i think i think a lot of players interpreted to they see it as quite a gloomy game but <laughs> i didn't i didn't necessarily look at it that way myself as i can't i'm i'm very pessimistic by nature uh in uh, like in my own disposition but i i can't like i have to write things that show me a path forward that that is not bleak um because i can't like sort of handle the idea that reality might not be that so i have to like work so for me it's almost like therapeutic to work on these stories and have them have them like have characters who can like resolve their differences and things like that because it doesn't always happen that way in real life, but it can. Um, so I, I and I like to, you know, I think stories have a. They they can be they can be meaningful to people, right? They can be powerful, and it's just showing. Sh- I'm more interested in 
characters who can like work through their differences the hard way uh, by by like talking to each other than by like slashing each other's throats or whatever, which <laughs> which which is also fine. But but like I've I've just like I think there are enough stories like that out there. I don't have mm-hmm. like I don't have a contribution to make in in that sort of genre of storytelling. Uh, I feel like so. Yeah. Mm. And you said with your themes, like you want to start, you want to ask questions that you don't know the answer to. Yeah. When you get to the end of the project, do you feel like you have an answer or no answer to the question? I feel like I have a, I feel like I have a more rounded knowledge of it. Like the, the, um, I feel like I have a, a, a deeper understanding than when I started. I've thought about it more. Um, I feel more kind of at peace with it. Um, and I really, I, I'm really grateful that our games have like larger casts. You know, when when we worked on Bastion, that game has four characters in it, other than a couple of backstory characters. Um, and then you know, Transistor has has slightly has like six characters in it plus some backstory characters. And then Pyre and 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 Hades, Hades were up to thirty characters. And I'm like, I'm I'm excited because you know, Gen Z, our art director, she does amazing work. And like, the more characters she gets to illustrate, I think the better our games are off. Um, and and for me uh, personally, just writing more characters is is something I I really love to do. And it gives like each character, um, you know, is defined by their by having like a unique point of view, like by definition. So it's just the more kind of points of view I get to have in the context of a story, the more I get to like explore whatever the hell uh, we're kind of going off about with the story. And and I I get to you know if I'm if I have a clear sense of a character, then I could just, then it just becomes, you know, Kate, maybe, or maybe you, you all can relate to this, but I, I it feels almost like I'm just kind of transcribing what, I don't even feel like I'm coming up with what they're saying. It's just like, this is just what the character would say and believe in this situation. I'm just kind of transcribing it. I, I don't even feel like I'm coming up with it necessarily. And like the character, the character is helping me to understand something. Uh, if that makes sense. Um, so no, I, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I think w- with Hades, it's like, I, my, my family certainly did not have the specific problems <laughs> of, of, of the, uh, of the Olympians uh, growing up, but like, I, I, you know, a- aspects of aspects of like the game are certainly come from my experience and, and like it, it helps me to, to like look at it in a more like like from a broader perspective instead of just my own you know instinctively it i'm i'm gonna look at something just from my own point of view but i i i just always as a i i think i think if you're a writer maybe it comes more naturally to you but you 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 force yourself to look at things from from the other point of view you understand that antagonism is is relative that like mm. your story is from you you could just as soon sort of flip the script in your story and turn the antagonist into the protagonist and and vice versa and like when you i i find that to be a helpful for me it's a useful way of 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 understanding the world around me in general it, it, i think it it leads to empathy um and so on when you when you understand that like evil is kind of a like most people are not simply evil <laughs> they they right. just want really different things um and and um thinking about characters in terms of what they want 
how were they brought up? How did they come to think the way they do? What are their biases and what are their blind spots? I, I find that like endlessly fascinating and studying other characters' blind spots, it makes me wonder if maybe I, I can be a little bit more aware of my own, but then they're blind spots, so you can <laughs> never know what they are. Yeah, I mean, it does help you reflect on your own biases, I feel like. Um, that's the, the real joy of ensemble casts to me yeah. is it's so many opportunities to make arguments. And I feel like a lot of my characters are informed by aspects of me. So in, in some ways, it's, make, it's me making an argument with myself. Right. And the, you know, the best way to discover how you feel about something, what you really think about something is to um, you know, like take a position and try to argue that position um, or explain it to yeah. someone else. And so with an ensemble cast, you have two characters who want opposing but understandable things. Um, you can come to understand, or at least I do, um, more how I think or feel about something um, through that. And I, I feel like that's one of the real joys of writing for me, not just ensemble cast, but just writing in general. Yeah, it, 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 absolutely. Yeah, that's right. And it's like, it, it, it's just, it, it, and it's fun to, as, as a writer, to like, Again, I I don't I don't really think in terms of like heroes and villains and stuff mm -hmm. like that. It's just different people with 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 different points of view, and you could you could have it. It's just always I always enjoy writing the character who's like can be completely misguided, but also <laughs> like very very um, like self assured, you know, because their experience is what it is. They they they've come to believe things a certain way, and they could be very self assured in a in a worldview that that is like pretty messed up when you kind of look at it for what it is but but it's their it's their worldview that's like the the world has shaped them to be that way um and it's it's just interesting to yeah kind of pit characters like that against each other i back to the bastion days yeah having characters who you know having a cynical character versus an optimistic character it's like which one is right which one is wrong it can be pretty um you could spin it any 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 way you like uh, as a writer um it's not inherent that um, how how to approach that, and I find the kind of the subtleties of those kind of scenes to be really interesting. Having the character that you know that's usually wrong, they're usually terrible, but they're right about this one thing, and <laughs> it's just like I, I find that more true to life. I find it, it, it kind of deepens characters and is more interesting to write. Yeah, it draws them in their full humanity. I feel like. Yeah. Some some characters are you know could be occasionally there are people who are irredeem irredeemably terrible one hundred percent of the time but even you know we have like in Hades we have a, a Theseus who's who's one of the who's like one of the just you know the, the, a, a character that people love uh, kind of love to hate because mm -hmm. he's just such a he's just such a jackass he won't <laughs> listen to anything um, and it is really fun to write um, he's like comically ridiculous um, but but even but even he once you know occasionally like there you you go deep enough on him and he'll he'll start to like show a bit of whatever humanity he has and it's and, and it makes yeah makes him more kind of endearing for for what he is i think yeah i feel like it's so fun to ask just going off what you said earlier is that people's you know, the way they are, the way they act in the world, what they believe is informed by their experiences. So to try to work backward from someone like Theseus, even if you don't know the legends and say like, how does someone come to be like this? Yeah. Is a, um, a an act of empathy, sort of a process of empathy, trying to figure out 
how someone could come to be like that and why they would feel correct in having, you know, done the things they've done or, or, yeah. or act, acting the way they act. It was a fun, like, little kind of side tangent in Hades because, yeah, the, notion, the, the kind of, like, ancient Greek notion of what it means to be a hero, mm-hmm. in quotation marks, it's like the modern idea of a hero is not the same as that kind of ancient Greek idea of a hero. Um, and, and that's, it's just like a fun thing to explore that like the, the kind of the, 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 the bravado, like, like being boastful, like being like, how many people have you killed? <laughs> it's like not necessarily the measure of heroism in, in modern society. Um, but, but, you know, with, with these guys, like, yeah, Theseus and, and Heracles, like the, the, the myths about them are not all pleasant. They've done some really... Mm-hmm atrocious things <laughs> but they're heroes it's it's all good because they they did some other you know they're, they're famous so it's like um it, anyway that was a it was cool to be able to like again like explore things like that in in our own kind of in our own way and it, it just you know in a game in a game that has characters that can you can talk to over and over it, it just finding little things like that to latch onto from the source material makes for uh, makes for interesting stuff to be able to talk about. Are there themes that you gravitate towards in your writing, Kate? And like, when you do start writing with about themes, is it towards the beginning or after you've been writing for a while? And like, you see what comes up naturally. Oh gosh. Um, I try not to go into projects or characters with like a theme front and center. Um, I'd rather, I I try to approach people with um, characters with, motivations and desires and um you know past history that informs why they want those things and the themes sort of surface on their own um one of the things i got to do in Paralon gorgon that i really enjoyed was um i wrote the the quote-unquote villain character um who just revealing their existence is a spoiler so i can't talk about them too much but um (laughs) um one of the themes that came up in their writing that has come up a lot in my personal writing is um family dynamics and the cycle of trauma. Um, and so digging into that in a game context is, um, you know, it's, it's fun and it's a unique challenge. A lot of times we don't get to dig into really sort of hard and um, I don't want to say like deep because it sounds like fake philosoph- uh, philosophical, but um, just like harder but more personal um, stuff like that. So, um, you know, I feel like that comes up a lot and being able to explore this very um, domineering, challenging, angry person and ask, like, how did they come to this conclusion about what is the proper way to act in the world and what um, what can they do for the world? Like, what can they bring the world to make it better? Um, and so to to work on that was... Um, it was cathartic in some ways and also um, a little unsettling. And it's like, I don't know. Overall, it's, it's, it's what makes the writing really fun is when I get a chance to do stuff like that. Like talking about um, Parvati's personal story is weird and hard, but at the same time, it's very cathartic to have that out there and like have that conversation on the page somewhere and to then have people come and engage me about it is very cool. And so it's a little bit of like a empathetical experience for them and that they can, here's the thing I don't understand. I don't understand what being um, an asexual person in a relationship is like, 
that this character is going to put that on the screen for me and now it's going to force me to think about it. I got so many emails from people who were like, you know, my partner and I have struggled with this and I've thought about it a lot and this really helped me come to conclusions about our relationship or like understand them better. And that is the kind of stuff that, um, I don't know, it just really sends me. <laughs> so, um, you know, I didn't like... That that part of Parvati's character was already established for me, so I just got really lucky with her. But, um, you know, what she wants at her core is to be loved and cared for. And so, and then she has specific challenges in her life that um, impede her feeling like she's worthy of love and care. And so the themes sort of arise from exploring those angles. That's awesome. Um, this is a question I, I want to ask more of everyone in the future, but... On the last uh, game you worked on, was there what was the character or piece of dialogue or scene that kept you up the most at night or worried you the most? <sighs> Woo! Yeah. <laughs> Deep sigh. Yeah. Hmm. Does something come to mind, Kate? Like there's there's lines of dialogue that always um, give me pause, where it's like you know an NPC is being especially mean. Um, or um, undercutting the player in some way. You know, that, that's just sort of the, the regular stuff we look out for in narrative design. But stuff that's more like sensitive topically, um, that's really tough. You know, there, there's like a final confrontation you have with the, the villain in Paralon Gorgon, and um, you can talk to them about their philosophical or like scientific... Um, understanding that led them to the conclusions that they arrived at. And um, it gets really close to a conversation about eugenics. And so that I wanted to tread really, really yeah. carefully about that and, and do a lot of reading and think really hard about how not only this character talks about, um, talks about their research, but also what the player can say back. Like if you're going to have um, a character that espouses some really vile opinions the player absolutely needs several ways to refute that. Right. Um, and this is something that you know, tripped me up with um, Parvati's date conversation in the bar uh, where you are sort of coaching her through asking Junlei out. I went back and forth on whether the player could be mean to her or to sort of discount her concerns. Um, because on the one hand... We want to provide a wide range of RP, play, uh, op RP options for players so that they can play who they want to be. And um, I believe very, one of my firmly held narrative design beliefs is that um, making a good decision, being a good person, being decent in the game world doesn't have weight. It doesn't feel important unless you can also be bad, um, unless you can also be a little bit mean so that you, you get the... There, there is a choice to not be yep. good. Um, and so I really went back and forth on whether I wanted the player to be able to be mean to Parvati in that moment. And I decided that because, and this could be the right and the wrong choice for any number of designers, and it's just where I personally fell. I decided that because this, there's so few ace representation in games or in, or in any media at all, any visual media, and that community is going to come to this game like an oasis in a desert, just to look at that character. I didn't want to present them with content that would make them feel lesser. And I, it, it's still, it's still like, 
I still don't know if I made the right choice on that, but um, I think I've made my peace with it. Has anyone ever said, like, how come I couldn't be mean to her there? Not internally, but um, I, I absolutely, like, I love to read feedback of our games, even the very mean yeah. feedback, even the feedback that, like, hates me specifically for no reason. Um, if I stumble on a YouTube comment about it, um, you know, I am in just interested in think, hearing about how people think about the game and conceive about these characters. Um, and yeah. so there's definitely players who are like, why, why can't I, you know, be an asshole to her right here? Right. Um, why is the developer constraining my options and railroading me into see, being kind? Um, because, yeah, because I want you to be kind to this character. I want you to experience being kind to a person like this, basically. Right. Yeah, it seems like also if you're... I, one of the things I find kind of funny, if any, it, like about RPG, I, 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 I've been like, like, like RPGs are the the reason I wanted to make games one day, um, like playing old Ultima games and stuff. So that, just a preface before I like <laughs> broadly criti <laughs> criticize the entire genre, but like it, it's funny that in RPGs that they let you sort of bounce between being kind and being cruel so readily because I think that's not how like it works for people like i always mm -hmm. i was always or i was always curious to see if there could be like an rpg where like the more they they kind of do this right where like you can you know mass effect you can unlock renegade points and now you have renegade options or something like that um but it's like as you do kind things you get it, it seems like it should lock you out of of cruel options because that's just no longer how how you how you think it's like yeah. I, I think about like in, in, in Fallout or whatever, you can go from, you know, helping old ladies across the street <laughs> to like ma massacring villages. It's like, that's not, it, it, you're not playing like an internally consistent character. Like your character is, is weird at that point. Like no, no character would do that from like a writing standpoint. But, but yeah, so it, I, I would rationalize it by like, <laughs> yeah, you're in that she's. I don't know who would who would be who would be mean who would be cruel to her in that situation, but I mean, yeah, yeah. I I, f I wonder if it comes out of um, not to defend RPGs. I feel like this might be one of their yeah. fatal flaws. Is that the the Western RPG digital RPG grew out of tabletop gaming, yeah, and which grew out of war gaming, and so I wonder if it is just sort of a vestigial limb of that like. Uh, what do people call in the industry the the quote unquote murder hobo um, ethos? What? I've never heard this. Oh my god! <laughs> Work on RPGs. It's it's brought up all the time. It's like, what about the character who wants to play the quote unquote murder hobo, which is really just a serial killer? Um, and um, you know, so that's why in Obsidian Games, you can kill every NPC that you see, like literally right. every single person, um, because you know, on the one hand, it's like we want to give the player ultimate freedom like you would have in a tabletop yep. RPG, where if, you know, you see a shopkeep and you really want his fancy ring, you can gank him. Like, yeah. <laughs> and, and, no, that's and that's just sort of the, the, the background that informs that choice. But I don't know that, um, that it is necessarily a, a tradition we need to carry forward. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that's definitely the, the tradition. Yeah, the, the, those old uh, Ultima games, they were all about that. It's like... It, there were games about like being, you know, there are games about like being a good, uh, being a good person, but mm -hmm. like in order to be, it's back to what you were saying. It's like in order to be a good person, they have to present you with the options to, to not be a good person and they have to let you 
kill anybody and like experience the consequence of that and be like, uh, maybe I'm not a good person if I, <laughs> you know, ro rob this shopkeeper or whatever, um, steal, steal this horse. Um, so by it, th that made it really powerful, it, like even at the time, because, it, because the consequence was there. Yeah. So I, I really, um, what, what you said, I really, uh, agree with it. it. Like in general that, yeah, like, like in Pyre, we had, um, we had a number of narrative choices that I expected no one would choose, but, but it was important for them to be there, mm -hmm. uh, so that it it, it kind of like emulates the the dark thoughts that people can have and then kind of chase out of their heads, you know. It, it, like a lot of I I want to believe that you know in, in, most of us faced in tough situations will will do the right thing when we stop to think about it. But like people have their, you know, they have to stop and think about it sometimes when they're in a dilemma or something like that. And it's really yeah I th I find that like a fascinating aspect of RPG design of like what yeah what choices do you even offer? Are you are you like are you encapsulating like the range of what the player may want to be able to do or say um, at that time? It's so, it's so interesting. Um, yeah. And the, yeah. That, that you still, <laughs> that you still think about it now. It's like, it goes, it goes to show how like complex that, that determination is. And I do, I do think like not just offering those options is valuable, but like the players who make that, those choices, I don't think that like, they're bad people necessarily. Yeah. There, there is a lot of like fun and joy in experiencing, you know, mischief or evilness that has yeah. no real consequences. You know, that's why, why the goose game yeah. is fun. It's like yeah, harmless mischief. Exactly. You're kind of messing around with things. It's like, oh, what is this? Sometimes in games, yeah, you'll see like a really like outrageous response of like, oh my god, I would never say that. Like, <laughs> what's even What's even going to happen if I if I say something like this? So yeah, that those are fun moments for sure. Yeah. Well, if you put them in there, then I feel like the corollary is that you have to pay them off narratively in a yeah. way that um, takes the choice the player made seriously and then acts on it in the world so that they see the consequences of their actions. And that's where right. the consequence half of choice and consequence comes from. <laughs> this is a great line that. We could totally just keep going on for another hour or so. I know, I could talk about RPGs forever. <laughs> but um, each episode, we have our guests ask a question to our next episode's guests. And in our last one, Sissy Jones asked, games being adapted into film and television, yes or no? I, I, say, I say yes. I think it's like, like it has to, like it's, it's inevitable on one hand because, because like comics and stuff have already been strip mined, right? <laughs> Like, like they're down to like D list, C list comics, uh, so they yeah. they've run out of books, they've run out of comics. Like they they're gonna have to turn to some other media to adapt into movies and television because they want to, you know, because if you're gonna spend millions of dollars to make a movie or something, you want to pick something that, you know, they're they're risk averse, right? Like AAA game studios, like they want to pick things that that have demonstrated appeal, and there are a lot of games out there with cool settings and cool characters that it's the same as comics to me there's a strong parallel um so i i think it's a matter of time before there are more good things like that um but there are already some examples i i i suppose right there i don't know a lot of it seems like a lot of people enjoyed like the the castlevania cartoon and stuff oh, you know, yeah. when, when it was yeah. announced people are like what like castlevania that that seems weird and then it turned out I don't Fine. know. The, it, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think I, I think some of these, they've really struggled, right? There, there have been these movies like the, 
you know, they've been talking about like a Bioshock movie for seemingly over a decade now or something like that. <laughs> it's like, man, that seems like you could make a good movie based off of that setting and premise, but it's, yeah, it's but obviously difficult. Yeah. But it took, like my... it, yeah, sorry, it, it took forever with comics too, though, right? They made, they, they were like terrible comic movies for years and years, and then they made like X-Men or whatever, and then they... Say say what you will about. I, I know a lot of people still don't like you know Marvel Studios stuff, but they they went from being these like laughing stock you know worst <laughs> movie of the year type candidates to being these like kind of like super mainstream you know w- publicly well loved types of things in in the last couple of decades. It, it totally. took a while to get there. Sorry, they you were superseded saying, their own medium. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now those characters are better known. Um, yeah, from from movies and stuff. Yeah. Um. I think my general feeling on it is like, I guess yeah. we can adapt <laughs> games. Um, it, it, for me, there's like there's like an, a, a spectrum of adaptable games. You know, you have games that are much more um, much more filmic. I guess you could say. You know, you have your your Last of Uses and your uh, God of War 2018s, and um, I feel like those could really easily be adapted into films, but then there are experiences, game experiences that really leverage the the play, yeah, part of games that are not replicable really. So you could never adapt Outer Wilds out of out of a game; it just wouldn't be the same. The experience of playing Outer Wilds and discovering those secrets on your own is transcendent, and it's something I don't think you could really get at in a film. Um, but so, so I don't know. I feel like there are adaptable games for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I would say it's like an interesting sort of like throw, throw down the gauntlet type of challenge that I, I do like, I, I totally agree with something like the outer wilds. Like the play experience of it is so, is so like specific to why it's good, even as like a, a fairly like narrative rich game. Um, the, mm-hmm. the, the actual like, physical exploration that you do in that game is is so much of what makes it special but even still i think the kind of like the whimsical world it wouldn't be the same for sure but like could there be a animated movie based on outer wilds like there are worse premises that that have been like that would make a pretty cool uh probably make a pretty decent animated movie kind of inspired by the premise of that game with like the janky you know, wooden spacecraft and yeah. aliens trying to find the origin of their universe and like stop the supernova from happening over and over. And it's just all right. You won me. Cool. You won me over, Greg. Because now yeah. I'm imagining this like a James and the Giant Peach yeah, exactly. version, so, and it would be perfect. Yeah, it, it loses it like it loses something for sure. But the part the, I, I I refer to the part where like they just need the premise, right? They they mm-hmm. just need like like Guardians of the Galaxy. What do they have to go on? Like it, it's not a comic <laughs> that that anybody really. Like, nobody, it took, like, a hardcore Marvel nerd to know what Guardians of the Galaxy even was, but that the the fact that there was less to go on, like, made it so that it, it could be, like, one of their more, stand, you know, they could be more imaginative with it. They're not constrained by, like, everybody knows who Wolverine is. They could just kind of yeah. do something more more interesting with it. And I, I, think, I think if people, like, they could just, like, strip mine games for, like, good... 
<laughs> good jumping off points for for settings and characters and stuff like that. I I don't really think that that it's being approached that way right now though. It, it's just like the potential seems to be there. Yeah. No. I I think that's I think that's really fair. Um. I think I said maybe earlier that like when you adapt a game from a movie, something is lost. But you make a good point. Something is also gained. You can tell a very different kind of story and, and still use the same premise. And it doesn't, it doesn't take anything away from the game by existing. It's just a different, um, a different way to explore that narrative. Yeah. Like, like in, in our, um, you know, uh, Max, you asked before, like what, what were things that like kept, uh, kept us up at night while, while writing? Like for, for me, I, I'd never worked on, uh, like Hades is our first game with like, uh, basically with like, romance in it which i'd never written before other than other than like very kind of more more sort of the the, the romance in like games like pyre and transistor such as it is is like very kind of subdued um where it, whereas it's kind of more direct in 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 hades and that's something that was that was like scarier to me to approach than you know writing like the ending of the story because i'd like done something like that before but you know with with things things that are still really hard for us is like we have to express these kind of intimate character moments just you know kind of in like dialogue boxes and with voiceover like we don't we don't have mm-hmm. we're not like naughty dog or something we we can't produce a lifelike uh scene of characters interacting you know hugging or kissing or whatever or, or even just like someone putting a hand on someone else's shoulder it's a it's a tragedy uh in in game development that like these these very small nuanced interactions that that can normally happen but shaking hands with someone putting a hand on someone's shoulder not even romantic gestures right um that those are actually so hard to execute typically mm-hmm. in in games like to have two characters interact in that way um maybe maybe those are just the kind of biases of how genres have formed that they that they're centered around combat and stuff like that but but it's hard to get those types of interactions in a story and whereas in like a show or a movie um it's much easier for characters to look at each other kind of be the, the, the nuances of their interactions to come through um so I, I i look i hope stuff will happen there i guess i i i've wanted i don't know think of like po- like freaking pokemon did it they just Pokemon did it years ago. They they're just like we're gonna have a show and we're gonna have a game, and people love the show. People love the game. Like they just put work into it, and the 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 show wasn't an afterthought. But I I don't know that it's happened that much since. But that's that's more you know it's it's seen as like it's seen as like a kids show or whatever, so it doesn't really get credit. Uh, but but so many people like grew up on. You got you got plenty of people in their like twenties and thirties. They like grew up on Pokemon. They absolutely they like unironically still love it. You know because they grew up with great show great game whatever and i think those two those two things like fed off of each other um yeah gave them it gave them sort of different versions of the of the world to explore yeah i feel like the games games this time is coming with that maybe i don't know yeah like, I, I, you get I the same so. thing happening and um same thing happening and you know film adaptations adaptations of books they're exactly it's it's so hard not necessarily impossible, but very difficult to represent the kind of interiority you can get into a character in a book um, it, on, on film. It's just, it's just a totally different way of getting inside a character's head. Um, so, you know, you get adaptations like Annihilation where the book is profoundly different from the film. The film is more like a, uh, 
a fever dream of the book, but they're, I yeah. feel like they're both fantastic stories and experiences. Um, just jumping, taking the same point and jumping in different directions. Yeah. Yeah. And they still feel connected, right? Yeah. I mm -hmm. wasn't like, I, I didn't like, yeah, the fact that the movie Annihilation was different from the book, I wasn't like, hey, this this is this is <laughs> sticking to what was on the page. It's like, oh, cool, it's a different. This is clearly, uh, like, unquestionably, this is inspired by the same ideas, and 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 like high level is is the same it, it is clearly re related. But it, it's exciting to see it spun differently. And I think there's like the old, you know, it's an old kind of cliche that that like books are never you know, the book is always better or whatever. I, I think that's like called into question more. I think, I think with mm -hmm. the, I was never like a big Lord of the Rings fan as a, as a kid. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I read them, I read them like only, I read them again, like more, more recently. And I'm like, man, the, the movies are like so much better than <laughs> like, I, I didn't realize how much of the, like, like almost every word is, I thought more of the like dialogue and stuff would have been taken from the books, but almost none of it is. And it's like, wow, this is just every, every aspect of this is, is superior in the, in the movie adaptation. I don't know how maybe there's someone for whom that's like a deeply offensive, idea, <laughs> but not, not, yeah. A good, a good example of being inspired by the source material and taking, taking it a lot further. Yeah. We asked the other question, but I would love to talk more about annihilation. Also, that was, that's <sighs> oh, yeah. like a once in a, once, in a lifetime kind of adaptation where Garland said that he adapted it because he read the book once and then wrote his memory of the book. And that's how he adapted it into a script. Perfect. Seems, I love it. That's perfect for that story. Mm -hmm. I did right. prefer the book in, in that particular case, but I, I appreciated the, the movie also. I like the movie more, but also I'm one of the few people who likes the second book in the trilogy the most. Oh, really? Oh, yes. Yeah. I love authority. Thor I like just control is such a good character. Sorry, I could talk yes, about. Yes, I'm a Jeff Vandermeer super fan. I could go on forever. Interesting. Yeah. Control is the best. It has my favorite image in that entire series. When uh, spoiler, spoiler, the the person who runs Area X walks out of the forest with Area X behind, like pulling Area X behind her. <sighs> Make her Toward the end, the yeah, yeah. The, the director near the yeah, end. The director. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man. I'm so glad that I read those books before knowing anything about them or about the movie. It was such a mind fuck. Yeah. It's a great experience to go in not knowing anything, that series. Mm -hmm. Okay, Nick, what's the last question? Uh, or second, well, last. The second last question is, also in our last episode, Erica Ishii asked, if you could collaborate more closely with a different discipline in gaming, what kind of game would you want to make? I thought, I, I think for me, like the, you guys play uh, Inside by Playdead. Yes, that it. is one of my favorite games. Yeah, in, Inside is like, I don't, I, I actually don't know why th that game isn't like revered as the best game ever. I guess a lot of people, I think if you've played it, it's like, that game is, it's astonishing. It's like the amount of, the amount of like craft in every square inch of that game um, blows me away. But it's like, and I will admit to this uh, as someone who writes a lot of words as part of my job, it's like the highest form of storytelling mm -hmm. I think is, is wordless. Um, if you can like words are just sort of a crutch for storytelling. It's like a way to get the ideas across, but if you could, but, but with imagery, you could get them across like even more efficiently in a lot of ways, right? You don't even need words. Um, and, and inside doesn't have a single word in it. Um, and tells this, like tells a super like <laughs> wild, like fascinating 
science Surreal. fiction story. Yeah, that's like really like gripping, like right from the start. It, and and that's like, and that is just possible through like a intense collaboration with with a, an extraordinarily talented animation team, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it, yeah, for us, it's like the I don't know. To me, that's like the high again. Like I I don't even I don't even know what that's like. The, the the to be able to like tell a story entirely through through animation that way but it seems really really cool to be able to do that i i've thought a lot about it but it's um th- that would yeah that would be my my pick it, it, it's fun as a constraint also like what if you couldn't use words like what would what story would you tell mm-hmm. yeah what I love about that is because there's no words nothing has to be explained and there's no expectation yeah. that it will be so you can just do what you want <laughs> it's everything is like kind of subtextual and everything is like yeah left it's it's all it's all this like y- your experience of it is like a it's like a mystery almost right you're just like yeah what does it mean but you get that impression it's so well executed in that game that like you have that feeling that everything must be me you know everything must fit there must be meaning here it's not that it's just random that's why i felt that uh, that inside was even better than limbo which was also an extraordinary game but with limbo i i i felt more like it was like a bu- like a bunch of these really awesome like atmospheric vignettes but but with inside it was so like cohesive mm-hmm. uh in in a in a way that would, yeah blew me away and like I, I i don't know that i i've never played anything like it uh since it just had such a strong singular vision. Yeah, that's like how do you, how do you, and you, you, you know, again, not to, not to spoil it, but how do you even get everyone on board with that vision? Because it's a very, oh yeah, specific vision where it's like, man, how, how do you get everyone bought off on that? It's it's amazing to me. Yeah, like I, I don't think that I could have sold that ending internally. No. Um, no, it's just and like, it's like the commitment to the surreal is um, hats off. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hats and off, it's man. like, and and for me, it's like maybe you're it's it, it's the same for you. Like if if you're writing a character, well, you could just write like obviously it, it's different when you know if your story is like and now you know there's going to be a giant awesome spaceship and it's going to destroy the planet it's like then you, you have to have a big meeting <laughs> whatever. Oh, yeah. If you can if you can resolve your story just through the conversation perfect no one's going to bother you right it, like mm-hmm. y- you have the tools to execute that on your own and i i i like i i have to make those considerations um all the time or like what what are things that sort of are going to pull a lot of the team in but like with inside it's like such a high investment to that particular story with mm-hmm. the stuff that they do at the end of that game that it was like yeah like how do they I mean, it had to just be very visual. I imagine that they just like were were mostly using like storyboards and artwork to like convince each other of what they were gonna do, rather than like I I I, I rely more on on words, right? I just have yeah. to write stuff out. But images are so much more persuasive. Yeah. Yeah. So, Greg, would you be working with like what discipline would you be working with? Uh, with with animation. animation. Oh, okay. Yeah, with just like I I I'm I I. I still like get super envious. You know, I don't work on AAA games or anything, but like when I see, I, I get I get envious when I see like awesome AAA characters. You know, putting hands on each other's shoulders and like <laughs> and, like smirking Same. at each other, having having like nuanced body language. It's it, it's great that games are at that point now where where you could actually have acting in them, right? Mm-hmm. Like like where 
I think of the ending of the original Last of Us or whatever, which is very like understated and and actually rely. It's only possible because it has like acting in it. It it, it like relies on small, you know, uh, like like nuanced, you know, glances between the characters and stuff like that. That like no words are are exchanged in 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 some of those moments. So I I find that really impressive. But I've I've personally never been able to work on on something like that. It's still hard because it's hard to go between like, all right, you're going to write, spend your whole day writing barks and then not to go write like a cinematic and like, remember that, oh, I can use actors to get someone to cross the stage, <laughs> trying to make it explicit to the player. Yeah. But Kate, you were right. about to say something before. Oh, I, I was going to, I was just going to give my answer, but we Please. can, um, I think for me, it's probably sound design. Um, I don't know if this is the way it works at every other studio, but it, at least at Obsidian, um, sound design tends to come in last, the last team. Um, so, you know, the stuff is set in stone before they've even really touched the project. Um, and we've been making some efforts to get um, sound design, you know, in, in our meetings from the get-go. Um, on Parallel and Gorgon, I, think, I feel like we had a lot of success with that, um, having sound designers in every critical meeting so that they could flag concerns or say, you know, give us great ideas for like, well, this would be more effective if we could, if you could do it this way and then we could use, you know, this sort of sound environment to make this happen. Um, Just thinking of like the kind of game you could make that um, really leverages sound and fewer words. I'm with Greg. I'm down to write less, (laughs) do more story (laughs) design and less word typing. Um, and really work with sound designers to create a um, probably a horror game. I don't know. I feel like I, I think about games with really great sound design, and for me, it's always stuff that's horror adjacent because sound is so powerful um, in instilling dread. So you know, games like Prey or Alien Isolation, Dead Space, um, sound is really important in those games. And then there's just like I don't know, one-off mechanics and stuff like games like Fez. There's that level where um, the screen is sort of blocked out with noise and you have to navigate a platforming puzzle just with sound and um, controller rumble, which is, you know, a really fun, cool challenge for me, at least. I'm sure that didn't hit with everybody. That must have been a very divisive level. But um, I would love to work more closely with sound designers to create something that is um, meant to be intently listened to. That's rad. (laughs) Um, Is there any... Is there a storytelling question that both of you have for our next guests? The one I was thinking about uh, is is just what's what's one of your favorite books that nobody's heard of? Mm-hmm. Nobody's heard of being open to interpretation, but just one of those like pet like man. How come? I don't know. Book, books are. It's one of those things. Everybody, nobody would dispute. We should all. <laughs> reading is so uh, vital. If you're if you work on story, but Mm -hmm. it's like, it's also such a, it's the one field that is maybe even more overwhelming than, than games in terms of like, where do you even, you have infinite options. Um, (laughs) um, and, and many, you know, that many of them are, are very good, but like, what are, what are some of those things that like, yeah, either, either very inspiring to you or you think storytellers should check out. That's a good question. Like to hear book recommendations. Um, I think piggybacking on Greg's question, I would ask, going back to our earlier question too, what book would you like to see adapted into a game? Yeah, that's fun too. Because my, oh, 
my personal pick would be House of Leaves, <laughs> just because I love I love atmospheric horror games, and I feel like that would be a really fun, weird one. Not not Annihilation. <laughs> Annihilation. I would play, I would play actually, an Annihilation yeah. game in an instant. I, that could make a pretty that could make a pretty solid uh, survival horror. Type oh yeah. Of Look at the sound design. Yeah. <sighs> That's the what movie I you were going, did it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's one of those things where the movie had a had a very actually a really cool sound that, design. The weird the the weird the alien noise. Thing. I yeah. still never forget. Oh my god! <laughs> weird sound design cue. <laughs> yeah. Wait, I want to hear. What is Greg's answer then for a book that you want to make into a game? For a book, I actually I have a I have something that like springs to mind instantly because I like. And I don't know that this is my, this was an answer that I had in the past. I don't know. I, I may have to give it some more thought, but like one of my favorite um, uh, fantasy novels uh, is called, uh, is called Elric of Melnabene. This like, a, a, it, Elric is one of those characters where like, even if people don't know the name, they probably, he's a, he's like a pretty iconic character. Like there's a, he's very similar to Geralt from Witcher down to his appearance. He's like an albino, like, like, like sorcerer, drug addict, cynical <laughs> warrior guy in, in like a cruel gray area fantasy world. Uh, but, but like the, um, it's just such a tight, like imagine it's like less than 200 pages, just super like vivid, like seventies fantasy imagery the plot just gets going right away, really sharp characters. Um, I just fell in love with that setting and, and world and thought it would make uh, for a great um, game adaptation because it's very, it's kind of like people, you know, people have been watching The Mandalorian recently. They're like, hey, it's kind of like a video game. It's like, I'm sure that's not a coincidence. <laughs> it's not a coincidence yeah. at all. Um, and, and, but, but Elric, you know, it, 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 it was written before, um, it's like before people were playing PlayStations or something like that, but it's still very like quest structured. His, his objective is always very clear in this kind of stuff that just seems like it would lend itself uh, very directly. But Game of, Game of Thrones and stuff, I, I care less about these kind of stories now because it is, it is like a cynical, mm -hmm. like cruel world. And uh, as I said before, I'm less interested in that, that kind of writing personally, but I always thought it would be make for a, make for a kick-ass like God of War type of game. Oh, man. Yeah, soul sucking sword. But I worked on a game. <laughs> yeah, I worked on a game that that drew maybe a little bit of inspiration from it. Oh, that's awesome! Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's Michael Moorcock, right? Yeah. For listeners at home, okay. <laughs> it's out of print. I actually tried to find a copy recently, but um, you have to buy used copies. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. that's too. Oh man, that's a shame. And the, the the final like I haven't even read. You know, so it's a bunch of these short. They're all like. I think borderline like novella, you know, mm -hmm. only a couple of hundred pages, but the, the final book in that series is like one of my favorite books ever called Stormbringer. Um, it, it's probably one of those things where like, maybe I just read it at the right time and you know how it is with that stuff. It's like totally. sometimes you just, um, you can't, you can't separate it from where you first experienced it, but it's like, again, just, just the, this, this amazing, like kind of fantasy apocalypse type of scenario. That's like, so, it's just the most like vivid, some of the most vivid prose I've like ever read, but that kind of like you know it's still high high fantasy yeah. type stuff. But it's like the 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 the, the antidote to to Tolkien's like kind of goody two shoes like good versus <laughs> evil type of fantasy. It's just much more 
I had never read anything like it at the time where it's like the, these fantasy worlds can be gray, you know, which which now The Witcher, you know, gets gets credit for in Game of Thrones. Right, but it's like classic sword and sorcery. Yeah. Very like se- yeah, and super 70s, I don't know what what all inspired <laughs> very very <laughs> uh very very imaginative, let's say. All right, I have to find a copy now. I'm going to open eBay as soon as we're done here and I'm going to go find a copy. <laughs> These are all going in the show notes. <laughs> Yeah. What would you say? Or you said, yeah, you said uh, House of Leaves. House of Leaves, yeah. yeah. I haven't read that, actually. What about you guys, Max and Nick? What would you pick? Uh, I'm sure I had a different answer I thought about it more, but my first answer was I would make a game based on the book Big Dead Place by Nicholas Johnson, mm-hmm. which is about working uh, low-end jobs in, in Antarctica. And it's a non-action <laughs> book. Ooh. But just because I would do it where it's like, kind of persona five style in the school where okay you're going to be in Antarctica working dead-end jobs for like a winter over or for a summer and you're going to be leaving at the end of the state what are you going to do in Antarctica until that oh, wow date? that's fun I wish that structure was used the that persona structure is so cool of like every day yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah that that uh, I I like yeah the way you just described that sounded really interesting it's like freaking Antarctica like what are you going to do <laughs> um I know there's probably a book I'm forgetting, but like the first that came, came to my mind was, I don't know if either of you read Ted Chiang. He's the writer who wrote the story that Arrival's based on. Yeah. But in Stories of Your Life, the collection that that's from, there's also one about uh, these people trying to climb the Tower of Babylon. And oh. I think that could be some interesting like short form game of just trying to climb a fucking tower. <laughs> <laughs> that could be really fun. Yeah. There's, Ted Chiang is like the last writer who like really blew my mind. Just how great he is was there and, like a particular book uh stories of your story of your, stories of your life yeah is, I see. his collection that is the most famous and he just put out a sci-fi one called exhalations yeah that i haven't read yet but i own it his favorite book of mine is um the merchant and the alchemist gate which i recommend it's like a short it's a short novel maybe maybe it's a novella actually um which seems to be a thing oh no it's a novelette um oh it's an exhalation fantastic oh man just read exhalation the thing that always pulls oh, okay. us away is that writing isn't even his day job. His day oh, job really? is just writing uh, technical manuals. Yeah, technical manuals. Yeah, he's a technical oh, writer. <laughs> you would think that he he could move on from his day job at this point, but yeah, maybe not. I'm sure he can. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's a. I, I think a lot of authors have have that kind of backstory, right? I mean, like pre- present company. Well, you you get to. <laughs> you get to live the the dream at least uh, on 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 the surface, right? Where you get to write both uh, by day and by night, Kate. But yeah, a, a lot of it seems like a lot of novelists, you know, they they had their whatever, they're kicking around at their at their job, and then ha- kind of moonlighting on on the story of theirs. Yeah, I don't think I know anyone except for um, like people who are multiple New York Times bestsellers who don't have a day job because writing books pays so yeah. poorly. <laughs> you have to you have to just feel like you have to do it right you have yeah to love it the the process of it or something about it on yeah, that makes depressing me wanna... note i was about to say something slightly more optimistic which no, is do it. please it makes please. me want to it makes i i mean i i i still want to try and pick up my try and write something on the side again so thank you for the thank you for reminding me that it is humanly possible <laughs> So. Oh, that's great. Thank you, Kate. Good job. Oh, yeah. 
You're so welcome. <laughs> I will say for anyone who's listening, but also for Greg, um, probably the only thing that has kept me writing at night after work is that I have a community of people that I write with. Um, we all have a Slack together and we just talk about our writing problems and talk about, we check in on how our stuff is going and people pop into my DMs. They're like, hey, how's that chapter you were laboring over and stuff like that. So oh. I would recommend that if you have been trying to write after your day job or before and you just haven't been able to get the motivation, um, get some people together who are as dedicated as you and um, push each other along. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, because yeah, left to your own devices, it's easy to, it's easy to lose. Yeah, for for me, like yeah, it's it's hard. Lo- losing the motivation is is very very easy. <laughs> so having <laughs> having someone in- encouraging you along and just kind of keeping up uh, that that makes sense. It's like the nano rimo thing. Like yeah, you know, it's why it helps people, right? Just knowing that others are kind of plugging away also presenting yeah, as a absolutely. bit of a challenge. That is a more positive note to end on. <laughs> but Yay. thank you for coming on. Is thank it, you. Let's know if you want to plug anything or if you want to plug your social media, if you want to point people towards your Twitter handles or what have you. Kate, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter as at Kate Dollarhide. I am at the same handle on Instagram also. And, and Greg? I'm, I'm just uh, at Kasavin, K-A-S-A-V-I-N. Yeah, thank, thanks so much for for, yeah, thanks, for guys. inviting me. Yeah. yeah. It's a lot of fun to, to talk about. Yeah. And this, uh, our podcast is on Twitter at ScriptLogCast. Um, our logo was done by Lily Nishida and our music was done by Isabella Ness. Max, say the Sony thing so we don't get in trouble. Uh, where's the paper? <laughs> uh, the comments we make on this podcast are our own and in no way reflect the views of Insomniac, Sony, or Sony Inter- Interactive Entertainment. That's it. Thank you too again for coming on. We're going to end this episode. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>